Thank you very much, everybody. I'm sorry this is a kind of game of two halves, but you will be, have the pleasure of Patrick uh, stepping onto the stage at three o'clock, and I apologise that uh, there was a kind of, uh, in technical terms, a cock-up, but it doesn't matter. <laughs> uh, anyway, it's, a, it's an absolute delight to talk to you, Sarah, and I, I want to ask you the, the first obvious question about this book. Before we tell people who haven't opened it what it's about and... Uh, how it came about, um, and what your own take on it is, and I hope we'll have some readings. This is a book which is a, essentially a story of two men, their teenage time and their lives subsequently, and an enormous sense of loss and, from their perspective, emotionally, a missed opportunity and perhaps a, a missed life. Um, it reads to me as if it could only be written by a man. Hmm. It's um, extraordinary. Well, no, no, I take that as a compliment. Well, it's meant as a compliment. <laughs> um, no, I mean, it, it's remarkable. Well, thank you. I mean, that was, that's, that's always a dilemma, actually, when you are writing predominantly two perspectives, male perspectives, that I... Uh, but there's a woman in the middle, we should say. But, there is, and but actually she's not she's painted in as, no, as nearly not. as vivid colours. But yeah. I will say that Annie... So this is a story about Ellis and Michael and Annie. It's about a marriage between Ellis and Annie, uh, and it's also about this love story between Ellis and Michael when they were young men. Um, one of the things when you are writing about men is you do have a sense of trespass, because that's the whole point, that you don't want to fall back on cliché. And so... It's, um, you, there is more time spent um, over how that voice is going to come across as authentic. And one of the things that, that was very necessary was to not write as a male, but take out what I would call my femaleness. So if those who read the other two novels, you will see that there is a certain poetry, there's a certain uh, use of metaphor, there's a certain sense of landscape or, or that could really only have been written by a woman. What are you saying about men? I'm not saying anything at that point, but I'm okay, talking... Carry no, on. With myself, we'll come back Jim, to that. Jim, Jim yes. with myself. So, so that's how I would have established myself yes. with writing. So people would be used to that. So when we were looking at the first part of this book, that is Ellis's point of view, so 1996, a man who, out of the three friendships, he's the only one who's alone, uh, who's alive, um, and he's, he carries on, he, he can get to work, but he's lost meaning. And for me the way that I could start formulating this sort of perspective was to take out metaphor so that he has lost meaning. And, and that's how we learn as human beings. We can bring great understanding and bring meaning to our life through use of paradox, through use of metaphor. And to just give him quite a literal landscape made it easy for me to get into his sort well, of mindset. Well, we mustn't get into too much detail without you explaining how the book unfolds, but what's interesting about that answer is that the book opens with the story of his mother, yeah. uh, who wins in a raffle uh, a reproduction of uh, Van Gogh's flowers. Sunflowers, yeah. And uh, her husband wants to tear the thing off the wall or not for her to have it. He wanted her to get a bottle of whiskey when she won the raffle. Mm. And... Uh, so, I mean, there is a metaphor that runs right through this because it is, um, it is the south of France. It's that lushful hippocrene. It's the, you know, the sun, the excitement, the openness, and that is definitely there. And it's something that mm. that he longs for. And mm. 
realizes that he hasn't quite consummated yeah. because of the fact that Michael disappeared and then died of AIDS as a consequence of somebody else, nothing to do with him. Exactly. He, this part of, of the story of grief uh, within this tale of these three people, that, but, but what is happening? The, the, the fact that he's on his own at the start of the book is it's not necessarily that death is the wound. It is the finality that certain conversations won't be had again and things won't be able to be resolved. The wound of this man is the fact that he's never acknowledged this love affair with, um, with this other man, this young man, when they were both Which happened in the um, yeah, mid-teens. Yeah, it was pre-Annie, you know, this, I think it was being described somewhere as an elastic Annie marriage. is the woman in the middle. Yeah, it's not. These, these all have their own time frames, but there was this great love affair that he has never been able really to acknowledge for himself. And, and really it's Annie. Annie doesn't have her own story, but Annie is the catalyst. Annie is the most important character as far as I'm concerned in this book. She gives them their happiest times. But when Annie and Michael together, uh, Ellis were together, she would constantly say to him, go and find him. Annie had the sense and the knowledge that there was something very beautiful in their past together. And she longed for him to acknowledge it for it to become part of him, but he was still holding back with this sense of shame or, or secret with it. That he, he yes, couldn't it's more quite... secret than shame, isn't it? Because it is. the shame disappears, I think, in his mind by the end. I, oh, He's no, got beyond that. In this part of the story, there is no shame. Mm. And there is absolutely one moment in this um, whereby there is no shame. Yeah. So no, it's, it's all it's about not. loss. But it's the fact that he hadn't, on the journey that is not in this book, that he hasn't been able to find a place of acknowledging this great love. And Annie kept saying to him, go find him. Very simple words. When he's on his own with this book, and he sorry, what, on his own within this book, and he imagines his wife coming back, the thing that she keeps saying to him is, go find him. Because that is the key for his journey beyond this book in order to gain some kind of sense of perspective, some kind of happiness, is the acknowledgement of what he had. I think, and I hope, hope I'm not trespassing on, um, you know, uh, a very private thing, but I think you wrote this in embryo anyway before you wrote the other two books. I did. That's true. So this was based on the, my first book called Tin Man, which came around uh, before Rabbit. And so it was written in 2006, and part of a contract that I had was a, after Rabbit was a new book, plus going back to edit Tin Man. So, um, and what changed between then and now? Uh, sort of in tranquility, as it were, looking back on it. Ten years of life. Death of a parent, living, you know, understanding relationships, understanding the grayness of relationships, understanding really... Philip Roth said nobody wrote a good book until their parents were dead. I can see why he would say that. I can. I mean, I, I, I hope that's not true. I still have one alive, but... Oh, sorry. Yeah, that's it. <laughs> I should have checked. But, anyway. No, no. <laughs> Thank you. I apologise to him or her. No, 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 no. She would love it. She would love it. Yes. Um, well, he actually, you know actually what? Roth said it's when your father dies that you can write, so it's OK. <laughs> Do you know, and he was totally right. I, I totally get that. I think, you know, well... Yes, I do agree with that, but I also would say we can't only wait for the death of our parents to no, give no. us freedom, well, because not. that would be no. a shame. You know, but you do work towards some kind of freedom well, what's before fascinating, that. It goes back in a way to the first question I asked you about uh, writing, because 
the story of Ellis and Michael, and I should explain, and I'll ask you to go through the structure of the book in a moment, but uh, that there's a huge chunk of the book which is Ellis's story, yeah. and a huge chunk of the book which is Michael's story. So we see from their points of view, and you're, you're writing from the inside. Yeah. And that's what's extraordinary about the way that you can unpick a male sensibility about the whole, in a sense, the contemporary transition of a view of sexuality, mm. you know, which we're all familiar with in all sorts of ways, you know, politically, um, ecclesiastically, and so on. Um, and it's a, an amazing subject to take on, as you, as you plan to do for your first book. How did but that come I hadn't. About? That's the point. Yeah. I hadn't. This was not. I mean, this is a new book. Yes. So the first, in the first book, the only thing that I would say that is still the, the, the so one of the running themes was in a, it's set in Oxford, in East Oxford, in Cowley. Yeah. And the car works. Predominantly in the car works. And what do you do when somebody has the constraints of birth, that they are going to work in that factory because that is what is open. They're going to follow in the footsteps. What happens, though, in this working-class, conservative environment, when you, have, when you have a skill, when you have a great talent, as Ellis does, as he's a, he wants to draw. He's going to be a, an artist. That's what he really wants, as mm. his mother wants. That was part of the first book. Yes. But how can that sit uh, in that environment when your destiny is pretty much complete and what do you need? You need a champion or you need a mentor. And that didn't happen in the first part. But I do like that story as to what do you do with talent when, when the bedrock of that kind of education isn't there to take it forward. So that was always going to sit there. Also, the title remained because I learned about 20, 25 years ago about this job in the car plant called a tin man, called a tinny. And they have these tinny bays off the main line. And really what they are is they're the most highly specialized panel mm. beaters, really. To get the wing properly yes, aligned. Yes, exactly. But, but all through the line, I mean, we, we're assembly now, but way back then it was manufacturing. So all through the different process, through pressing, through uh, body and white, and then in the paint shop, you would have them at different stages of the skill. I think there's one that still is around, and that's in the paint shop. So these cars are pretty much ready to go. Um, pristine, highly polished, and then somebody gasps because they can see, you know, there's a, a blemish. A wobble, yeah. yeah. And they get these guys in, they, they take it to the tinny bay, there are all these handmade tools, which is so romantic. It's been handed down. You've been there, you do acknowledgement to the, to the factory. And the, I have and met the... a couple of them. Yes. Um, and so I was, I was gushing over how romantic it is. And these are working class men who have done this, and they're just thinking I'm completely bats. And Maybe you are. Well, I am, that too. <laughs> but he couldn't explain how he did it because yeah. he'd done it with but his he hands. Just, he just knew. Yeah, and they can get in. So they can get in behind these dents, knock them out, and they haven't disturbed the paintwork. And so that started to make me think, well, this is like sculpting. You've got to know this. They don't look at these blemishes. They don't see them. It's not an eye thing. They feel them. So they put on these white gloves, so pristine white gloves. And they're feeling, and so you've got this noise like and this a industry. Body, like a body, he says. Yes, it's like feeling a it body. It is. Well, that's my take on it. I'm not sure whether he would actually. Well, you, I, I gave him you the make books, it but his I have, take. Yeah, well, I have, but I haven't heard from these guys who I sent no, no, the book no, to. Right, okay. <laughs> so I have no idea what they think. But, but it's just, it just struck me as maybe that's, if, if you couldn't go on and, and maybe become and, and, and take the journey of art or take, take that talent further, could you lead a good life by. By, by having this your job in the car factory, 
maybe you could. Maybe, maybe that would give you some kind of um, sense of an ending, maybe. And before I ask you to read a passage and, and perhaps tell us where it comes in the story, just so that it sets a scene for people who don't know it, um, the, the whole tone of the book and the, the, the conclusion, uh, which is, you know, uplifting and sad at the same time, brings out, sends out an extraordinary feeling of the loss that these two men have suffered. Mm. Uh, and you obviously believe that if they had been able to either understand uh, or have the guts to do something more about it, or those around them had understood, they would have had much better lives. Are you sure of that? No, I don't believe that's, that's actually where I am at the end of the book. No. I think um, Ellis and Annie had an incredible life together. Yes. I think it was a successful marriage. So he um, should be very happy. There is a sense of, there is a sense of having come to the end of the yellow brick road and mm. a sense of the self-actualization of a situation. And I think it's about the importance of time. It's about um, letting go of things that, that, that stop us resolving situations. I think it's about the time that they were apart. That's it. And yes. that's what he has to get to at the end. So, and one, one particular about illness. Yes. And, and that is his wound. I mean, I won't delve into yes. it, but that is Ellis's wound. It's not necessarily what had happened. He's, he's accepted a certain grief of that. Mm. But what he has to accept is the loss of time because of, because of something silly. And what was happening in his friend's life, this man who he really loved, that was so horrific and so awful and so alienating that he couldn't be there for him. And that's what he has to live with. And suddenly this kind of sense of pilgrimage, which is what it is, mm. and finding out who his friend was and finding out who he was and who they were together, that is the end of the story. And how much does finding out who he was change what had been a happy relationship with Annie? It enhances it because Annie mm. knew what they had. Yes. There was no way that, that had things been different that Ellis was ever going with Michael. That was a moment in time. And that's, that's why you're saying that Annie is such an important she character. She is, because she is the one who held it together. They all love each other. There is not an interlocking of sexual relationships here at all. This is about family. This is about family that is not tied with blood. And I, it's something that I come back to time and time again, mm. the extension of family and what family really means. We have one gay character, and I'm gay, and there are other people in this room, and certainly of my age group, there was a, there was a sense of an alienation within society at times, and some people have been alienated from families. And the notion of family is very, very different. I think it's different now. Society has changed. And so I do write about family in a different mm, way. Mm. Ellis, Annie, Michael were family. Give us a reading and tell us where it comes. Okay. Set the scene. So I'm going to read from the second part of the book. So the first part is Ellis's perspective of, of what is happening and a little bit of his life and his story about um, Annie and Michael. Then we get to the second part of the book, and it's a first person. So it's very, very uh, clearly Michael's voice and about what has happened to him in the time that they've been apart. And very direct, no quotation marks. No. We move in from description to yeah. the voice of the character without any intervening. Exactly. Punctuation. The year is 1989 at this point. 
Michael is uh, in St. Bart's Hospital in London um, on the AIDS ward, and he has just taken in his friend G, um, who is dying. G was an artist when we met. Five years ago now, not long after Mabel's death, I was sheltering in the National Gallery one rainy afternoon when I noticed him in the crowd, his resemblance to Ellis staggering. Kind eyes, thick hair, beard waiting to break out. And I followed him for two hours across an eclectic journey of Titian, Vermeer and Cezanne until we ended up in front of a painting that had come to embody an important part of my childhood. I stood behind him and in my most sonorous voice said, uh, he painted it in Arles in 1888, you know, as an act of gratitude, friendship, and hope. He laughed. You're creepy, he said, and walked on. <laughs> he was right. I'm not a natural cruiser. I've been told that many times before. But I followed him down to the bookshop and picked up books I had no intention of reading and looked at postcards I wasn't going to buy. Come on, he said as he passed me at the door. And we went to a cafe just off St. Martin's Lane. And after two double espressos and a slab of chocolate torta, the embarrassing age gap between us diminished and I persuaded myself it was almost respectable. He asked me where I lived. I said, Soho, not far. Let's go, he said. Really, he said. But I'm not having sex with you, he said. You're not the first to say that, I said. I've got jet lag, he said. So we can have tea, I said. <laughs> we didn't have sex, but we did have tea. He slept and I watched him and then I woke up and, and then I slept and woke up alone. A postcard of Van Gogh's sunflowers on my pillow, a phone number scrawled on the back. I called him that evening, left a message from Vincent on his answer machine, something about a lost ear. Four days later, I was on a train. <laughs> he lived in a barn out in Suffolk, rented it off a couple of queens who spent most of their days in France. Friday nights, he'd ride with another bike by his side and meet me at Woodbridge Station, and we'd cycle a short distance back to his studio barn, where I'd unpack my rucksack and lay out the spoils of our weekend on the rough oak floor. The wine, the food, a video maybe, and, and the latest manuscript I was working on. His body was a landscape of angles and valleys, a line of dark hair from his navel exploding around his penis, a light dusting of fuzz across his chest and buttocks. He made me feel who I'd been all those years ago with Ellis. Who am I kidding? He reminded me of Ellis, and not just in looks, but how intense he was, how hidden. And I became the boy I'd once been, living out the fantasy of long-gone youth. I could watch for hours as he ground chunks of solid paint pigment and mixed it with oil before scooping it into open-bottom tubes. He made me calm made me learn the names of paints. And I told him that Scarlet Lake and Rose Madder would be our drag queen names should circumstance ever force us onto the stage. Summer light shone in, pollen dust diffused the scene. The scent of flowers, smells of linseed and coffee, brushes standing in olive cans, wildflowers too. A paint splattered bed in the corner and me making martinis naked as G painted an abstract aberration of light across a field. It was everything Ellis and I had once planned. It was beautiful, and occasionally it hurt. I told G that, and he laughed, and the fantasy ended. Did I love him? Yes. 
although I hesitate to use the word because it turned very parental after a while, and after a while I encouraged him to see other men. I think he was grateful. Certainly the bohemian in his soul was. But I wasn't being generous or open-minded. It was a friend I needed then, nothing more. Eventually we became the two ends of a telephone line. Same time, same week. Yes, I'd say. What now, I'd say. What grubby adventure have you got up to this week? Eighteen months ago, the phone rang. Yes, I said. What now, I said. What grub... And there was silence. Gee? Silence. And he began to cry. Talk to me, I said. Silence. I've got it, he said. It, the shorthand we all understood. I said I'd never leave his side. Um, that's... You're writing there a scene that's set in 1989. Yeah. And Michael is looking back to teenage times with um, Ellis. Yeah. So, you know, quite a bit before that. Um, to what extent would it be different for them now, Oof. if at all? Oh. Uh, at what age now? In their teens, um, as millennial teens. I think it would be. I think it would be very different. Actually, mm. I do. I don't think it's perfect, and I think you know. Uh, but it never is. No, it's not. And you know, we. But we've moved. So you know, we've moved on. When when we're looking at their these teenage years, or when they went to France, it was sixty nine, and they were still underage, even though, you know, sixty seven had brought about the mm. Sexual Offences Act. But they were still underage. So you, there was that hanging over their love. Uh, it was not talked about. It certainly wasn't talked about in school. So, so of course it's different now. And there's the possibility of marriage. And would they have survived? Who knows? Relationships don't always in the flush of youth yeah, and quite. vigor and all of that. Um, so the shadow, really, the main shadow over Ellis is his father. Mm. And fathers like that occupy the space of any decade. And the father was the man who tried to destroy the reproduction of the sunflowers yeah. when his wife won it in the raffle. Yeah, he is a man who tries to destroy things that he doesn't understand because things he doesn't understand makes him feel um, uh, kind of sort of useless and lowers his self-esteem, that he's very frightened of, of, of the unknowing. And do you think, uh, not with relation to you know, sexuality and public attitudes to it, but in terms of the way men comport themselves uh, in the modern world, uh, whether that incapacity, as it's presented in the book of mm. the father, to, you know, to have those feelings, whether that generally has changed for the better or not? I think it is changing, absolutely. I think, you know, if we look at him and his timeline, we're, we're very close to sort of Victorian parenting and what you do. This is also a man who is not a bad man. No, absolutely. He's, 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 he's not good. You know, he's, it's, he came back from war. This is not part of it, but, the, but it's 47. He came back. He would have. That's his age. He's quite brutal in the family He home. is brutal, but... I don't mean physically violent, but brutal. Yes, no, exactly. Well, I think there is. I think he's hovering over the start of that book to, yes. to place it, you know, and he, there is. He was a boxer. So, so there is this sense of, of violence that hangs over the, the beginning of this novel. But... 
I've, I've talked about this before. In 1940, there was a spike in marriages in this country, and in 1947, there was a spike in domestic violence. So, there were young men, you know, they're, they're so unprepared for war and for killing, and they come back, and they're not sure what to do with it, and there isn't the capacity to talk about it because people didn't talk about it. And so, we're looking at this generation of men who have been forced to do things that are unhuman in a way, or, or not part of what their narrative should have been. And it changed everything after that, that, that holding those moments in and not talking about it. And so that's where he hovers uh, over his son. His son. He's frightened about his son's artistry because of the period of time. Artistry equals being effeminate. But that does not, that's, we know that that's not the truth. But that's what he's frightened of. And Once in the conversation uh, between Ellis and his friends, there's a lot of joshing and so on, uh, which raises this question about, you know, are you effeminate or, you know, you're Nelly, is the, Completely. the kind of, yeah. you know. Uh, the, the. At the end, when you talk about where uh, Ellis has got to, Michael is dead. Yeah. How would you describe the point that Ellis has reached? I mean, you did briefly earlier on, but just... Take us there again. At the end of the book, um, there was a line that I can say, and it's something like, um, he understood Michael's loneliness, mm. and that maybe his own um, is sort of acceptable now. And so there's a, there is a his sense His own loneliness. His own loneliness, as Ellis's, that he's, he's suddenly confronting that actually it's all right. You know what, I'm, I'm going to be all right. He's... Um, do you think he, he accepts that that's the sort of part of life that you just have to accept, that you, you buy into it and really that's what you get and you're lucky if you escape having to carry that kind of burden? Gosh, I, d I don't know if he has that insight. I think, but I think he's unburdened of something. And yes. I think what has unburdened him is, and this is very important in the structure of the book, in the sense of Annie saying, go find him. <laughs> The only way was to find him. But how do you find a character mm. who is dead? And that is in a first-person narration, really, of like a kind of a diary, where suddenly you are given this incredible gift of the time that you weren't together. And so that is the, that is the unburdening of suddenly understanding how much he was loved. And he, there's a very moving moment in the book where he goes into the family attic and he finds the reproduction of the sunflowers, which yeah. had been pushed away. But he also finds the box yeah. marked Michael. Yeah. And you understand exactly what opening that box means. It is. It's the, it's the, it's, it's un, it's the opening of his heart, in a way. The part of his heart that is absolutely locked. And the question is, at the end of the book, does it remain open? Uh, yeah, I think it does, actually. I don't think... I think it is. I think we see at the end of this book, or we feel, that he actually has a chance um, of having another stab at life and, and having colour in his life. And that's the important thing, that it's not a monochrome life now, that there is, there is certain light and there is certain sunshine, physically as well as emotionally, coming into his life. So what you're saying, in a way, is that extraordinary and, and in a way, grotesque although this journey has been with terrible pits of sadness, Michael's death and so on, people can handle things. 
think people can have a thing. Yeah. Look at the stories. We're all in this tent. There are immense stories so of, in the of end, grief and loss. In the end, it's not a, it's not a pessimistic story. No. In a curious way, although it's drenched in, in sadness and melancholy and a feeling of loss, it's actually quite an optimistic story. I think it is. I think actually, I think it's, it's having enough, in the writing, having enough years under the belt, so to speak, and the miles travelled to realise that um, if you're lucky, it's long haul and we can bear quite a lot and that we look for those chinks of light wherever they are and we grasp them in a way that maybe 20 and 30 year olds kind of don't. Sounds like they read four quartets in the church here on Thursday I night. I love that. I wish I well, could have seen it. It sounds right up your street, yeah. of course. Um, my apologies for having to go, but Sarah, thank you so much. Absolute pleasure. That's it. We'll take over. I love that. Thank you very much. Great. I can't do the accent though. This is a little um, bit like sort of Ellis, Michael, Michael. Yeah. I, know. Yeah, I know. This is very <laughs> this is very themed. You think this is an accident? No, you? no, it's not. You know it's I'm a control so You know I'm a control freak. <laughs> um, I, before we throw you to the mercies of the mm. audience, I, I, I want to step back slightly because yeah. the thing that really I found so devastating about this book was your analysis of masculinity mm. and what it means to be male and the way, in a way, boys are taught how mm. to be a man. Mm. Um, is this something you, you picked up from family observation? Um, I've just picked up in general. I mean, some. Yes, my father, probably. Um, and I wonder you whether know. your acting training came into it, because presumably as part of that you had to learn. Yeah, but, you know, I've had a lot of people. I, I'm very lucky. I have... Um, I, people talk to me. Well, I'm sure they talk to you. So I've had a lot of older generation men talk to me coming to the end of life. Um, and that has been really interesting. So a lot of men who's, who went to war, who it's, it's almost like a sense of unburdening. But they will talk about the process of life and the, their upbringing and maybe how they see the changes have been and how they would have liked it to be different because they can see it. That sometimes they have done things that they wish they'd never have done. And not in a, a horrendous way. You know, my, my grandfather especially, he was one. And so if it happened to my grandfather, then my father is the product of him. And then we go on and we see the patterns and that it just takes something kind of brave and, um, you know, engaged fathering and strong mothers to actually identify this and say, you know, we can, this is only learnt behaviour, actually. So we can change this and, you know, we can start with, Young boys, you, you can cry. You can, you can, the V word, isn't it, really? It's about yeah. vulnerability. Yeah. But if, if I was in the happy position of being your editor, mm. I would ask you, and I'll pretend to be your editor Go now, on. I, I would ask you if you were now at all tempted to write a, a sort of, not a sequel, but a sort of echo novel doing the same for femininity and the constructs of femininity. Or do you, does that feel like old, old hat? No, I don't think it does, but I think... I think this was just the story. I, I don't. It was, you were telling a I story. I don't start you with a theme. About themes, no, 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 I never sure, start with. Sure. A, I'm not a thematic writer in that way. I, you know, I talk about it. My phrase is that that you reach a certain age and you, you walk your protest and you walk your care. Sure. And it's and it's there on the page and it's not necessarily loud, but it is there. 
what I believe. And, and so to come up and say, well, will I write a feminist novel? I think most of what I write is. Mm. I think I, it would be very good to, to really write something about mothers and daughters because... Because um, your own relationship with your mother is very clearly very close. It is. I mean, it wouldn't be mine because that would be utterly dull. <laughs> but, but I've, you know, you hear stories. Women of my age, you know, when mothers die, you are always a daughter. Mm. And it's almost like you're a daughter in society. You're a daughter to, you know, it, you hold on to that role. And I think it's quite an interesting role. And, and how enmeshed that can be. Mm. And um, so I think there's sort of mileage to think of that. But as far as it being predominantly feminist with, with what those credentials I know, you know politically are, I, I don't know if I can. I can't no, and, and, say and right now. We all know it could be death to good fiction, too, if you come in with Completely. the idea before you have Completely. the story. Um, yeah. And stylistically, was it a conscious decision, because you were writing from a male perspective, mm. to make this book so sinewy and lean? Yeah, totally. Because, I mean, your other books weren't fat, but they were more generous, I don't know, effusive, perhaps. It was this, always... This, is, this, is, this feels very tight, as if you cut off an awful lot of extraneous prose. We had no idea, because, it, because there was, it was the original book. So ten years ago, there was this book like this, and Oxford, Kaplan, characters, you know, so they're all inhabiting this They're all the same ingredients. Pretty much the same yeah, ingredients. Yeah. There's been, you know, another book, and uh, so there was Rabbit, and then there was Marvelous. And so, I mean, you know, you, you, you develop these themes. But things run through each yeah. book, don't they? Oh, because you think you're doing something completely new. Well, you never do. You're not. It's the you're same thing. Working out your neuroses. Of course, you are. Your, yeah. your neuroses or your, you know, I think people say about the themes uh, that writers go back. I also think they're fears. So if you start tracing this repetition, you start to see how we're trying mm. to take control of life and work it out. And if I write about it enough, these things won't happen to me. I think. So two books on, and I go back to it, and I suddenly go. I, but this, this kind of book here has been done. But there was still this, this nuanced relationship between these two men, and, and I hadn't written that. And so you f reframe. It's like having this photograph, and you go, okay, that's it. But it had to be small, because mm. it, it was short form. It had to have space. And I knew I was never going to write Annie's story. But Annie's story is told by the two men. And they're not opposing stories, which I also didn't want, because I get very agitated with that sort of one person says mm -hmm. something. I just wanted her to absolute her story fit together like that, because that is the coming together of both of them. I've been thinking a lot since reading it about how it could work on screen. And mm. part of my, my initial instinct was, oh, this will make the most amazing Do film. It. No, but then I thought, actually, <laughs> and I think, yes, the story would work amazing. didn't you? No, no, but what <laughs> What would worry me, what would worry me is that it would then become less partial. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of the strength of it comes from that, that very part. It would take a very clever filmmaker I to know. retain that partiality. Yeah, I, d I wouldn't want to touch it as a... And I can just hear a tedious script editor saying, oh, but what about Annie? Where's, Annie, where's Annie's voice in this? And, and they would... Well, Annie, of course, is Maxine Peake. Um, <laughs> I'm sure you could put in a word. Yeah. I keep saying that because I think, you know, she's so good at the moment. If it goes out, eventually it's going to get back to her. Yeah, yeah exactly. Just yeah, keep no. saying it. It's so desperate. George, tweet it now. Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, the late great editor, Patricia Parkin, um, who's a sort of legend at Collins, had this ferocious advice for novelists, which mm. was always 
you need to notice what you're avoiding writing about mm. and write about it. So, Sarah Winman, what are you avoiding writing about? You've got three books under your belt now. What haven't I written about? No, what are you avoiding <laughs> writing about? Is there something that it, it kind of asks to be written about and you're pushing it away? Or? Um, you can think about that for like, we could take a question from the audience while you think about it. I, I think, I think, I think mother-daughters. Oh. Do you think, like me, you're having to wait for your dear mum to, to, to move on? No, that could no? be years. I mean, I hope it's <laughs> I years. I warn you, it can be. It can be, believe me. No, I mean, I hope it's years. As I said, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not writing about my, mm. my relate. Well, we don't, but we, we, no, we, but we all what know we your do mother is... thinks you're every mother she writes. They do. It's of the yeah, nature of the beast. Yeah, I think it's just, um, it's those, it's, it's, as I said, it's that complexity. As you get older, it's understanding that complexity mm. and the, the sort of heart, I think it's the heartache, actually, of realising that you are going to end up as a um, middle-aged orphan. And no matter how old we are and how much we have um, you know, experienced life, we, we grieve our parents as children, and that has to come. So maybe that's the avoidance, that, that I know that that's to come. And that needs to be faced because, as I said, you know, themes, fears, maybe that needs to be written about in order to, to find perspective or see what that means in other people's eyes. And I don't know, maybe. Well, and it's such a huge topic, it may take more than one novel. It could so be a trilogy. Don't worry, you have to get yeah. it right first time. You can come No, back. I can't, can I? Exactly. <laughs> I, think, I think we should have a question from the audience to, to um, throw Sarah off balance again. Because um, she's so poised, she she needs this this needling. So so not poised. I, I'm, <laughs> I'm going to exchange. Swap? No, well, I I think I think you, you're you're an actress. You can handle a stage on your own. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. I think I can say goodbye. And Do you want to go later. back? You got a coffee back there or something? No, no, no. Okay. <laughs> so put your hand up if you have a question for Sarah. I'll come back if no one asks you. It. Okay. Anyone about either of the books? <laughs> Any books? <laughs> Somebody else's books? I'm speaking from ignorance because I haven't read your book yet, although I've read the other two and love them, so it's a treat in store. Yes, no, it is. Okay. Uh, and so I, I only picked, what, picked up what you've been saying. I was very intrigued when you said about, um, talking about male violence, clearly, and about people going, getting the spike in marriages yes. in 40, and then you said there was um, a spike in domestic violence in 47 yeah. or 48, was it? 47. Yeah. So well, from I, what I've read and research. Well, I was just thinking to myself, at that time, there wasn't women's aid and safe and all the stuff now. So how do you know that figure? And, you know, what was being... And how much was... If you're saying that amount is known, how much more there must have been? Because well, so absolutely. many women just... I don't... You know, I don't. This is something that I kind of touched on in Marvellous. So I didn't... There wasn't this great study of it and statistics. I don't have statistics. The only thing I can think of would be um, police being called out or neighbours reporting... Um, this kind of, you know, domestic violence within the home. I can't think of anything else, it being that, you know, people talking about it. You know, that's it. It can only really be statistics, I would imagine, through, um, through the police and things being reported. Is that when your book came? No, I just, I was researching Marvellous of that period of time. And... Um, uh, what was just what was happening really because I obviously set Marvelous in 1947 so I wanted to know what the change of uh, 
of the, the changes after wartime and why it was really such a, a sort of a bleak year, really, that post-war, and, and that even though victory had happened, it, it seemed really quite the opposite of how people were going about. Um, but there were, there's, there was a book, and I think it's called something like um, Sex Problems of the Returning Soldier, strangely. So there must have been huge frustrations of these young men who had been away for seven years. They'd obviously, a lot of them, had had uh, different relationships, uh, maybe their first uh, met prostitutes, I don't know. But the, the one thing that I found of that pe period of time, I, I thought that it's really quite, it's about sexual liberation, actually. A lot of wartime was for some people. And so you're, you're getting people who were married and coming back as strangers, and they've got to live with each other, basically. And so, yeah. There, you know, it's not going to be harmonious. You know, we, we have get-out clauses. It wasn't quite the same then. You know, men were coming back to, to uh, children that weren't theirs and having to form a family. Um, uh, men were coming back and absolutely dismissing women from the work they'd been doing for five and six years and having great esteem and money in their pockets. It was, it was a very difficult time. So. It was just part of that sort of reading and that research that, that I came that, that I learned that um, if somebody says actually I've researched it and gives me the figures, then I'm happy to say that that's not true. But as far as I know, that's that's what I found out of that period, and I'm not surprised actually by it. Well, I, think it's tip of the I think it probably is. It's always been there. It's just that we 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 have this kind of very strange um, outlook on the Second World War. You know, we've we've. With, with the kind of films, that it's, it, that it's always been engendered as a, as, a, as a nice war, you know, as a respectable war. But it's still war, and horrendous things happened. Um, and a lot of the films of that time really, really were came, came about through a kind of propaganda, actually. Some horrible, horrible things have happened. Mm. <laughs> no one else is talking. Um, what's next? Uh, I don't know, apart from maybe writing what we were talking about. Um, looking at, I, I, I'm not writing anything at the moment, and that's, that's true. You know, usually at this stage in the other two books, I would be very nervous and very anxious and thinking I've got to start writing. And partly, I really wanted to do three books. I felt that was a, you know, five, three books is a body of work. Do you think? Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So I wanted, I at least wanted, I wanted a body of work because that would be, you know, if that was it, at least, hello. It's Maxine. It is. It's you know what? <laughs> she heard. She heard. Yeah. <clears throat> she booked a ticket for 2.30. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so over it. She, so I normally would have been, um, uh, yeah, as I said, anxious. And, and now there, there's, I think there's two things. There's a freedom to be able to write, but sometimes there's a freedom to be able to not write. And I think I'm just enjoying that moment of just seeing, being on the road, enjoying this, and then not trying to do two things at once, and then sitting down and looking through notebooks and seeing, you know, those little sentences, seeing which one you really think might work or might suddenly make you excited. Sorry, could I just ask as a, as a segue to that, actually? Yeah. Is, and I haven't read any of your books, I'm sorry. No, that's fine. But, but what, what, what prompts, well, what prompted the first book? 
did you always want to write about? But what, what got you thinking about the theme and the story? Is, is it personal experiences? I mean, I'm just intrigued by the, by the process that made you write a book and yeah. then the process in the subject matter and the yeah. whole story. Or were you always a storyteller? I was always a storyteller because I was an actor. So I came from acting. So I, was, I have been acting for 30-odd years. And so that's always been part of my life. Um, so I learned storytelling on the stage, other people's words. Um, you understand intrinsically the arc of a story, especially if you are doing television, because it's filmed out of sequence. So you, you really do need to know where you're going, because suddenly you might, you might on day one, be doing the end of the story, um, filming you know, that end scene. So it's, I see now, with distance, how useful all of that is in, in about holding it. I never wanted to write a novel. It was, I wrote screenplays, and I liked that, and, and that's kind of my film and cinema was my first love, and I still stand by that. I got to a point where um, I really didn't work that much, you know, and I was quite unemployable, and I needed to do something. But I w felt very dulled by the whole process, and so I needed to just that, have that joy of creativity. Um, that had no endpoint. So back to process, really, that you just sit down and you write, and you're not expecting to write well, or you're not expecting to finish anything. So I went to an adult education center and just did this funny little exploring fiction. And so I started to write prose then. And I had about, when I finished two terms, I had 40,000 words. But I hadn't expected to write a novel. So I think sometimes doors open. As long as you follow instinctively and get to understand what that voice says. So the voice said to me, you need to go to that adult education center and you need to do that course. And something on that course opened up the possibility of just having the freedom to write these words. I didn't know what I was writing. So we're going back. The first one was the original Tin Man. But my father was dying. I mean, he took a, it took a while. But he was primarily, he was dying at that point. So t the original Tin Man and, and um, Rabbit, I see were written sort of in the last four years of his life. And so that's what prompted it. It's, it's a kind of a controlled way of writing about someone and a situation or family because you can't change the ending. And sometimes that's what you do. You want to rewrite the narrative of your life or what's going on at the moment. And so in both books, I, you know, I was, well, if we could say Tin Man, it was a man in Cowley. Uh, worked at the car factory. My grandparents, they both worked at the car factory. You take, that was, you just take what was, what was available at that time. And landscapes that are very familiar, because that's a very potent thing. Childhood often comes up as, as a first book for everybody. So I wasn't really aware of what I was writing at the time. It's only as I look back, I just see that it was, you know, if we go to Rabbit, was about a family being able to start again and that was because we couldn't. You know, we, we had a very definite kind of cliff edge. And I think sometimes that's what happens, and you're not really sure. But a lot of this is, is instinctive and instinctual. A lot of writing is about selection and self-editing. And so you try lots of avenues until you just know that down here, that's a good one. You know what, that's, I would like to read that. And then you keep going down that one. And that one goes by the wayside. So. That kind of was the initial process, I think. What stage do you go from that process into the story when you're going to carry on the book? 
Um, well, I think it is because I'd never because I my uh, the, the my my creativity had always been it had a scaffold around it, and that was that I was doing it for money. I was professional. I was I was in the arts, so there was actually no point once I got on and I was writing prose that I thought it wasn't going to be a book, because it was immediately well it has to be published because I knew that was the end point of this process in the same way that I knew with acting. So it, it was, I was already in that kind of, um, as I say, professional sphere. So it was just, well, how and when. Um, the first book wasn't published, and then sort of Rabbit was. But I understood, as I said, I did understand story. I was already writing screenplays. So by the time I'd got the characters and I'd got the ending, which is usually how I do it, because it's, it's a very good way. Because I write about people, and I write about what I would call maybe redemptive novels. So if you have an ending, you know that your beginning is pretty much the opposite, emotionally or if not um, sort of physically. So that's it. I kind of, I kind of knew it. And um, you just find things that, that aren't boring. And you learn discernment and hopefully good taste along the way. Do you, do you have any anxiety that there is I did before this, and I feel, as I was talking about body of work and three books, I really wanted that in case there aren't any more. Because I feel like that's, I think these three books stand well together. And I think it also shows the journey of, of a writer and it shows the journey of a person. And I think that's, I like to see that. I like to see that with other kind of artists or visual artists. So you've sort of established a base. Yeah. Excitement about what might come. Yeah, I, I do actually, and it's really unusual for me. <laughs> <laughs> Usually, I'm just a mess, and I'm just thinking, "Oh God, I've got to write something." Oh God, I've got to write something. Knowing, knowing, obviously, underneath that it's an immense privilege. But I, you know, I don't. People don't always have a very easy relationship with their creative self. You know, you're not supposed to really. It is about your relationship with you, and sometimes you sit at the desk, and it's really nice, and sometimes you sit at the desk, and you. You just argue with yourself. Or it's just miserable. And then other days, it's just beautiful. And so sometimes you just don't want to do it. You don't have a sort of a store of ideas? Or no, I don't. No. But that's been good for me. Because what it means is I tend to have a book. One book will come out of the other. And so it means that that was the only book that came next in my development as a writer. And so if it bombs or fails or doesn't reach people in the way or doesn't resonate, it's OK, because it was the only one I could have written. I think it would be problematic for me if I sat back and I've got like five stories. Which one? So you do that, goes out there, people don't like it, and you go, should have written that one. <laughs> I don't have it. So each one comes out. And so it's, it's very much this, this sort of processing. So this sort of period of... You have got a question Listening to you talk, you often like, seem to write about like, people's feelings, and I was wondering if you ever find that like, words are not enough. Oh, God. <laughs> yeah, but they have to be. <laughs> I mean, no, but that's the medium. No, you're right. I mean... Well, that's why, that's why, you know, I use landscape a lot. 
Landscape is a great mirror, uh, a great emotional mirror. Um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, it's a very interesting question. Words are, you know, words are not enough. I mean, sometimes you get to a point where there is nothing to be said. I'm a big one to just write on the page silence, as you heard, because at that stage, it's quite potent when, when you can almost imagine that, that nothing is happening, and, it's, and yet everything is happening, and that you don't want to egg it, and you don't want to feel that silence. So yeah, so that's why I just write silence, and then it's, you make of it what you will. Hello. Hello, you. <laughs> um, I wanted to ask just a very simple question, really, about research. You were talking about the research for Marvelous yep. in 47, and you are also talking about uh, the research in terms of Ellis as a character in Cowley and the, the, um, the factory and the job of the Tin Man. What about Michael's research? What, where did you go for that? Michael's or yeah, no. was it in your mind? Um, well, I knew that. I mean, I knew that decade. I mean, if we sort of certainly around the, um, sort of seventies, eighties decade, or you know, coming out in the eighties. So that's where we all were, and that's our friendships. And you know, AIDS was in the newspaper in nineteen eighty, and was for another sixteen years. And so, I remember that time very much. And so, a lot of it was just there. It was having lived it. I had always, as far as if we go to the AIDS story, though, I'd always read um, Edmund White. There's a brilliant book called Borrowed Time by a man called Paul Manette, which is incredible if you want to really. It's a memoir of a man looking after his lover. It's so poignant, but also beautifully written. He was, you know, he wasn't, you know, so many lost talent, but he was one. Um, who are Blackwater Lightship was another novel, research novel, How Colm Tabin wrote that in 92, I think it might have been, I'm not sure. So that was a very good book. And also um, a very dear friend of mine, Pam, who's a friend of my mum's, they work together. Pam set up the AIDS ward <coughs> at St. Bart's in 89 um, because she knew that, that there was a need for that. I think the one at the Middlesex was open in, in 1987, which is also where you saw the photographs of Diana uh, shaking uh, the, the young man's hand, which changed everything. I think this is another reason of wanting to write Michael's story, that there is a generation now who don't know this story. And there's a lot of sort of almost sort of battle-scarred middle-aged gay men in a way who absolutely have embraced life but just have this little core of immense sadness of, of what they witnessed. And nobody knows what they went through in the book. Tiff, it was like I can remember um, not wanting to write AIDS. So I just wanted to do night sweats, I wanted to do composes, and I wanted to do blurred vision. That was it. And in the editing process, I said, well, what are you going on about? You'll have to write. And I go, what? But you know that everyone knew that. Everyone knew as soon as you wrote these things what it meant. And she said, no, people don't. And I, I was really surprised by that. And so it also it made it almost more important to just bring this story back. And I'm not the only one. A lot of people have brought it back. If anyone is really interested, I suppose more in the American story, there is a book called um, How to Survive a Plague by David France, 
Um, and it's, it's an astonishing book, big tome, literally about um, how ACT UP in America really, uh, how it all became quite political, but that came out a bit later. So, so that was sort of the research around, around that kind of stuff. Um, can just in passing, when we were talking about these times and those times mm. that you're writing about, uh, both you and James indicated that we're in really good times. But I wonder if we are. Oh, I really? wonder. I wonder if sometimes the surface, because there are still a lot of gay people in terrible pain. I'm Muslim. I know uh, you're how right. many undeclared people there are. Well, and also this, this um, the relationships. I mean, the connection you made about the war and domestic violence, there's a new connection being made just in the last few weeks between terrorists and their sexuality. I yeah? Yeah, I read so that. So I just wonder if we should bear in mind that things never improve in the way that we hope. No, you're absolutely right, because one of the things that was very important, and I think a lot of people have talked about this, that where the eight is, and I'm talking, I'm talking from this sort of gay perspective. Um, so the eight is were, were quite horrendous. Um, and it, it was a period of time where we had two right-wing governments. You know, that was clear. So if we have a little look at America of that time of when it came out, um, they were wanting to recriminalize, that was talked about, homosexuality. And there was a travel ban on people who were HIV, if people do not know that. And it, was, it took a long time before that was rescinded. Well, here we are again, you know. Oh, there was also quarantine, talking about quarantine HIV. Well, we have these same, this same language about other people. And so we are back with two right-wing governments and the politics of difference and keeping society divisive because then they don't rise up, you know. It's a very, so no, we, we're back in this. There is a... Uh, a legitimized hatred of others, of difference, and so that does exist. Outside of this country, for gay people, it's, yeah, we, we have to fight for them. You know, there are so many um, countries where it's illegal and, you know, on punishment of death and horrendous torture. So you keep up that kind of work. We just acknowledge, and we do need to acknowledge when progress has been made, because what's the point? And I think we have to acknowledge, certainly as I go back to you, uh, LGBT lives, that there is a moving forward. There is a dialogue. There is a long way to go, but we still have a bedrock. We still have legislation that protects us. And legislation doesn't mean that you make, you, that you make people change their minds. That has to happen in a different way. But legislation is there, and that has to be honored. And we will move through with that. And it has to be upheld. So. You're right, this is not a perfect world. In ve many ways, we're having the same kind of dialogues as we were sort of 30 years ago. But that is why it is very, very important, I think, for a younger generation to understand history and this sort of, to see the patterns of history. Because once we understand how progress and how you face the patterns of history and how progress can be made, mm -hmm. then, then they can also take that mantle and start to see how manipulated we all are and can be by press and by governments. And so it's not just about looking at sort of 140 characters. Go and find out, you know, what this is all about. And that's, that's really important. Sorry, a, a very quick one. Um, 
will you be going back to the screen or stage? They don't miss me, so I doubt it. <laughs> no one. So I don't know. I mean, yeah, I mean, if I don't write anything, I'll have to. But I can't imagine going back and having, uh, you know, uh, doing auditions again. It's pretty disheartening. Um, but I might, you know, who knows? Uh, but actors are really nice. I mean, writers are as well. But actors together, they are, they're very playful. And um, it's a nice environment, so... But, you know, the, the work that I've done probably the last 10 years, you would miss me. If you nipped out for a cup of tea, that would it. You wouldn't know I'd been on. So... have one more question? Speak now. There, oh, there are several questions suddenly. It's always the way, though, yeah, isn't it? Yeah, one more, one more. <laughs> um, you've been talking a bit about time and the things about writing. And I just wondered what you thought about, you know, we live in this massive technological age. I mean, many of us here are of a certain age and we were brought up with books We've not been brought up with, you know, Twitter and all the other bits and pieces that there are, Facebook, social media. And also young people perhaps not reading books in the same way. So I'm just really interested in how you view that. Um, you know, like how difficult it might be to set a book in the present because of all the technology and the yeah, difference of question. mobile phones. Great question. I've, I've, we had, we've had I'd this like discussion with, 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 with friends. It's like, I wouldn't. I don't think I can envisage um, because a lot of my writing comes about missed phone calls or a letter that's gone astray or a photograph, all these ancient things. <laughs> but there's a romance to that. And there, I remember that time where if you weren't at home, that phone call that could have changed your life or was informing you, if, that, if you missed it, that was it. You know, the, the, the letter that, that was coming from somebody who you absolutely fancied, your friend didn't give it to you maybe for a year later. These are wonderful moments. So when everything is available, when you can always find someone, then that, that plays a little bit of havoc on, on, on kind of, when I call the romance of it, I don't necessarily mean it. You do. <laughs> On which patriotic note, please do yes. all thank Sarah. The bottom of your hearts. It's been lovely having you back. It's been great. Thank you.